Hello. There's a few more just settling in. Very honoured you joined us here and not next door with the crowd, so thank you for being here. <laughs> um, firstly, I acknowledge that we're on... First, I acknowledge... Can you all hear all right? Like, it's fine. Firstly, I acknowledge we're on Ghana Yada and I pay my respect for Ghana's elders past and present. So I'll introduce you to today's guest. So Miles Allison is a writer and artist living in Melbourne. Are you still in Melbourne? I am, yep. You are? Okay. Miles is the author of the award-winning novel Fever of Animals, and he joins us in Adelaide to talk about his new novel in Moonland. So that's where we do the little flash in Moonland. Um, and Liam Piper? I forgot to ask, check. Close enough. What? Uh, Piper. Piper. Uh, whatever, I don't mind. It's, okay. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't ask. <laughs> is an author and journalist who's also from Melbourne. When did we open the border? What's happening here? Melbourne, have we opened the border? <laughs> <laughs> um, he's written a memoir called The Feel Good Hit of the Year and a collection of essays, Mistakes Were Made. His first novel was The Toy Maker, followed by Sweetness and Light in 2020. Welcome to Adelaide. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Karen. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for uh, yeah, finding a seat on this side of the wine. And you've both only... You flew in just now. Yeah. And you flew in last night. I flew in yesterday, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So you haven't really had much of a it's look around? Beautiful. Or... It's beautiful here, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It's not been very warm this week, though, but it, you know, it's nice. Um, so we're talking about the two books today. So Miles's book, Bhagwan Sri Rajanish, who was later known as Osho, um, and the Ashram at Pune feature in, in the book. Um, and Liam's book also has a fictional ashram in India, so there's, there's the common theme there. Both books are also set, parts of them are set in Australia, America and India, and centre the lives and experiences of white people. Limes and Liam and Miles, what mot motivated you to, to choose those three settings? You want to go? Um, well, um, I guess uh, the big question, the big inspiration for writing a book about India, um, like most great uh, writers, I was uh, contractually obligated to turn in a novel. <laughs> and. Um, you know, like all, like all writers, I love a check. And um, I was offered this incredible opportunity to uh, go to India and mm -hmm. write a book. Uh, not this one, a previous book. Okay. Uh, which is available in the bookstore and makes a wonderful gift. If, uh, if you're looking for something to still fill those stockings next Christmas. Um, but I went and I stayed in... Uh, in a sort of a, an old dance academy uh, just outside of Bengaluru, uh, used to be called Bangalore, um, in the old uh, colonial reckoning. And I just hung out there for three months and uh, it was an amazing experience. I got a lot of work done because there was no internet and no alcohol. Um, and I got to know uh, I was the only white guy there for mm -hmm. most of it. And so I got to know a bunch of uh, Indian writers from all across, all across the subcontinent and uh, 
you know, from vastly different walks of life, different language groups, different uh, religions, cultures. And, you know, it was a very eye-opening and mind-blowing. Uh, and they were rather, they were a bit uh, culture-shocked by me being an Australian because um, they didn't quite know what to make of me or my accent or, uh, you know, that the prison camps we run, which makes the news over there. Um, and more than anything, they were baffled by... Have you read a book called Shantaram? They were like, so what's... Can you please explain this to us? You know, um, this is a... Uh, this, you know, why is the, the white guy the hero of this book? Uh, we've never met a heroic white guy. And so that sort of got me thinking, and I started to, uh, to think about how... Like, there's this great history of travel writing, you know, mm. there's of, like, um, of, of particular English and uh, authors from Britain going to India and the country itself being a kind of a, a proving ground, you know, a place for spiritual growth or a personal quest, you know, that kind of hero's journey where you find out something about yourself. And it kind of... Um, but it treats the, the country and the people within that country as, I guess, narrative props. And so I wanted to write a book that sort of interrogated that a little bit. Um, and in, in regards to, like, interrogating and questioning that sort of journey of, like, a white person going to uh, India to find themselves, and this greater idea that has seeped into Western culture that you can somehow if you have some sort of existential crisis, if, if you have something you know, wrong with you, some sadness or some psychic wound, you can fix it by going on holiday. It's a very interesting idea, and I don't know how it got into our culture. So my two characters were American, because you can't write the sort of book I wanted to write without touching on it, Pray Love, and Australian, because that way I didn't have to do research, and I'd already spent that check I talked about at the start of this monologue and I needed to turn something around pretty quickly. So that's why the three countries, and that's why I wanted to look at, look at a country being used as a, as a means for self-actualization and self-improvement from sort of a blinkered Western point of view, both American and Australian, and both male and female. And that's kind of where it started from. So that's a very long answer too. Yeah, long um, answer's good. Fine. <laughs> and, um, I think I started this book thinking it was probably a lot of other things to what it is now. Um, I don't think I began it thinking that it was going to be about India. I was really interested in um, sort of writing about uh, my own dad's kind of life in the 70s sort of subculture in, in Australia and um, doing research into that. I sort of discovered that there was this common thread with a lot of um, the people who I was speaking to. and that common thread was India. So many of them had been to India in the 70s and India was such an important place for them um, for a variety of reasons. And so that, um, I guess that hero's journey or whatever that, that Liam was talking about, um, in some ways, certainly in this, like in this particularly Indian sense, began in the, in the early 70s as a, as a um, popular notion with the, with the hippie trail. Um, but I also wanted to, I guess, pay... Um, some respect to the importance that that experience had had for these people because 
there were so many of these people who really had been actually transformed in interesting ways or had had um, what they thought of as really profound experiences. And I became gradually more and more interested in, in um, the, the sort of aftermath of those experiences, the way that um, you can have this, this incredible experience and, and so, you know, in some cases it's sort of in the broadest sense youth and, in, and in, a, in another more specific sense it's a kind of spiritual experience. And then you go back to your ordinary life, um, you know, where you have jobs and where the, the struggles of, of ordinary existence uh, kind of grind you down. And I was sort of interested in, um, in the aftermath, how you integrate those quite profound experiences um, and continue on in your life, which is in, in a way that um, is often quite disappointing after, after the, the highs, of, highs of that experience. Um, and that was sort of the, um, that, that was sort of the, what became of the book after, after the, the impetus, which was, yeah, which was about my father. It became much more about, about India and I, um, and I remembered um, a very early, probably what I sort of think of as my first memory, which was sort of um, just being in a room with this particular light. I would have been four or five years old maybe and, um, and I realised that, that was, this room was, belongs to a friend of my father's who had been a, um, a Rajneeshi, a member of, of Bhagwan's um, group back in the 70s and he's still a very, like a dear friend, um, he's still alive and he was one of the, the people I sort of went and spoke to and his experiences there were so incredible um, and that, that particular time in that ashram in the, in the late 70s before Bhagwan moves to America and to Oregon and before what many of you might know about the, the ending more or less of, the, of that, of the glory days I suppose and the, the controversy and the poisonings and the bombings and the lies and stuff that sort of ensued. Before that happened there was this um, really incredible moment in time um, that continues to be a, a source of in, um, like incredible importance I guess and, and um, significance for a bunch of people. So I, I wanted to uh, pay some respects to that while at the same time being aware that um, uh, there, is, there was a dark side as well. Mm. Yeah. Great. So in, in Moonland, the protagonist Joe struggles with parenthood. That's how it, it opens. And the marriage. And then he eventually leaves his job and his marriage to go seek his father's ghost in India. And then towards the end of the book, Joe has created a safe haven on his deceased grandfather's estate. And there, there was always like, you know, that relationship also was a little bit hazy. And he provides shelter and compassion to a eclectic mix of older people. Um, and I really think that this mix of past, present and dystopian future, um, where the fascists were in control of Australia, um, really worked well, but I read somewhere that it took you ages to find that structure and you had to pull apart your book and do some pretty major work. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, uh, look, I, I feel like I, you know, I, I spent a long time thinking of writing about Japanese ghosts and that totally jettisoned all of that and a long time writing about the Vietnam War and, and now there's not much of that left. So there was all, yeah, there was a, a, a kind of period, like a pretty major, crisis at, at about four years where I, where I gave the book to my editor and, and 
to my mom and, and, and they both said it wasn't working. Um, and so I had to, you know, like really, that was a, like a, yeah, a moment of like incredible shame, I think. Mm. Um, and I had to sort of go back and, and partly I think there was, a, there, was a, there were structural problems. Partly there was a sense in, in which I, I tried to create a character that was different to my first book and that um, was sort of, I, was held at some sort of distance from me. And I realised I really had to just kind of go back into that stuff, which is the kind of the kind of painful, kind of personal stuff that you sort of don't really want to have to draw on all the time. Yeah. And I had to sort of drag that stuff out again and sort of, you know, wring it out a bit and, and you know, move through that, the real, the real stuff to, mm -hmm. to find the, the voice of this character. That, um, but the, the ending that you're talking about is, was always kind of an idea that I had. I liked the idea that I could write a, a kind of sci-fi book that didn't feel like a sci-fi book, that had a, had an out, like a, just a little, a, just a little coda at the end, basically. Yeah. That, um, that offered a way to see these three generations. So you have a you have the father and and then the grandfather and then the, and then the daughter in the in the at the end, and it's a world yeah I guess 25 years in the future and and you know I basically just extrapolated um, logically from the, the world we live in now and mm. you know it's a world in which yeah we had there was there is a terrible prime minister and there's there are droughts and there are fires and there is poverty on the streets and and um, um, and there's a, uh, a sort of a collective um, attempt by some people in the book, by, by the main character Joe, I guess, and to create a kind of an enclave or a, or a community yeah. that can um, sort of reimagine what it might be to live together, I yeah. guess. Yeah. But the daughter herself was creating community in some ways in the shared housing idea, so... So yeah, that's that really right. Works. So there's, I guess there's a there's a kind of line through the book, which is which is this idea of you know trying to organise it like a social arrangement that yeah. that works. You know, and you have the family, which is you know the nuclear family um, at the start, which is sort of breaking down. But you also, I guess, yeah, as you said, um, that the character at, at, in the final section lives in a in a kind of um, a communal share house where you have a number of different yeah. houses in suburban Sydney sort of growing their own food and, and sharing resources, which is something that's already started to happen and, and yeah. I think it's probably something that's going to happen increasingly as... Probably. Yeah, as, as property prices become become inaccessible but as as food becomes, um, you know, uh, you know, difficult potentially to, to access, mm. um, those kind of social arrangements are going to again be questioned in the same way that I guess that they were questioned in that in the 70s in that in that um that era where people mm. began to to think about communal living and communal yeah communal farming that sort of thing but that theme carried in through three generations because Vincent Joe's father pre-marriage also had a pretty bizarre share house situation where people were just dropping in and anything could happen yeah well that there's a um yeah, so my, that's sort of loosely based on my own dad who, who, who sort of bought a house really one day when he was really heartbroken and stoned. He was wandering, wandering through the street and um, he found there was an auction and he just mm. sort of put up his hand and he, got, he bought this house and he, didn't, he couldn't afford it. So he, he basically he became a kind of a share house for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was also... Um, there were other there were other kind of models for that, which were sort of big hippie households in in the 70s in, yeah. in Elwood that sort of transformed from from one era to another, from a sort of TM meditation centre through to a kind of political, yep. you know, kind of quite radical sort of Maoist or Marxist kind of political 
kind of centres to, and then you know gradually people drifted away or got jobs or whatever. But that that kind of mm. legacy of that era was something that yeah really fascinated me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just going to do a trigger warning here. I'm, I'm, we're going to briefly talk about suicide as a theme. Um, so but we'll do this delicately. So in both books, the protagonists have lost their fathers in childhood. In the case of Joe's father's Vincent, there's doubt whether it's suicide or accident. Um, but, you know, probably suicide. Um, yeah, I, I, I haven't made up my mind about that. No, yeah. I think, I think yeah, so basically the main character at the start of the book... Um, maybe I could read the first... Should I read the first thing? Or oh, should well, we, well, should we do that later? Yeah, let's do that now. Yep. Yeah, I'll yeah. The first paragraph is amazing. I, I, first, I'm a fan of first paragraphs. I'll just read the first paragraph so you get a sense maybe of what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. And then... In March 1996, a few months before he drove into a tram stop, my father bought an old Ford Torino with the money he'd won on a horse called Holy Moly. He was a fast, erratic driver, and it made him happy for a while, that car, the roar of it, the faded yellow phoenix on the black bonnet, the way the road seemed to open up for him. He hated traffic, but when all the lights are green, you can slide through the universe like a spirit without a body. Then things started to go wrong, and he had to spend a lot of money trying to fix them. Um, so yeah, so I guess that's that's the sort of the start of the book and the start of the the kind of the generating kind of yeah. kind of um, issue that drives Joe to sort of investigate why his father, why what happened to his father, whether whether it might have been suicide or whether it was just a kind of yeah, whether it was an accident or whether it was sort of something in between, yeah. It really felt accident to me for a long time, like reading it. It just fitted his personality. Um, and then in Liam's book, the, the character Sasha um, also died of suicide, but there, there was no doubt, like, you know, you've got a line in there saying that the people that knew Sasha's father were not at all surprised that he died that way. Um, but these losses in their childhood really had a huge impact on both Sasha and Joe. Do you both want to share why you chose these storylines? Do you want to go first, Liam? Sure. Well, um, to take it back to uh, something Miles touched on earlier about how, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, hippie communities, you know, like alternative intentional communities, which often have the best intentions, often have a very dark side. And I think that's perhaps an organic consequence of people who are wounded and have something like some deep psychic hurt that they're trying to fix moving into a situation where maybe the money's worth a little more and maybe the consequences are a little less because suddenly you're playing with um, you know real real damage from your childhood mm. but in a situation where life has and currency has all the consequence of monopoly money. And so I wanted to take those things, these kind of life, like these life uh, crippling traumas, um, that while you're at the heart of them, you can't look around and then mm. take them into a place where uh, you're allowed to indulge in your worst behaviors. I wanted to, to examine that that, you know, there's some, 
In the same way that Mars was playing with genre and like looking into the future a little bit, I wanted to play with genre because the book Sweetness and Light is in many ways, it's a horror story. It is sweetness. Uh, sweetness and Light is Eat, Pray, Love reimagined as a horror story, you know, where if you take that intersectional lens just a little bit and turn it, then the journey sort of becomes quite horrific and because it allows the worst behaviours of people to, to thrive. So that's a lot of preamble to say that uh, the suicide is, um, you know, I've seen more than I would like to in my own time. And the damage it can leave to you when um, you lose a parent in that way, mm -hmm. uh, or a very close loved one, um, it leaves a wound which can be, uh, I guess, exploited, you know, later on. It sets you up for a lifetime of making poor choices, mm -hmm. which um, both of my main characters, um, Sasha, an American woman, and Connor, an Australian uh, working-class bloke, both have traumas that sort of justify any of the behaviour that they that they justify to themselves, that the country that they moved to uh, allows them to indulge in. So, um, the reason why I chose that particular trauma was because I wanted to set up a character that is hurt, but sympathetic, and makes poor choices, but you understand why she's making those poor choices, which is a luxury when you write fiction to help you understand the poor choices you made in your own life later on, and then try and hoist it onto a public. So thank you for uh, persevering. Um, so I got Trent Dalton shouting in my ear here. Yeah, it's really hard <laughs> to hear. <laughs> no you're not missing anything. Um, um, yeah, when I, look, I was going around, um, interviewing a bunch of my old, um, my, my dad's old friends, and um, one, of, one of them told me uh, something that, that I hadn't known before, and he, he talked about when my dad had this kind of strange limp, um, and I'd never known about this limp, but I had noticed that my dad had used to trip over things. My, my dad had been dead for quite a while, for a decade or so. But I, did, I remember him, he used to always trip over things and, and you know, swear really angrily. And it was only um, when I spoke to one of his friends that I'd realised he'd actually tried to kill himself um, many years earlier after a heartbreak and he'd sort of drunk himself into a stupor and taken a lot of pills and passed out on his leg um, and um, cut off the circulation in his leg and so that he'd, he'd um, actually had to walk with a caliper for quite a few months, this is before I was born. Um, and so he ne could never properly lift his foot. Um, and he'd never told me that, that story. He'd never, never, I'd never noticed that he had a limp, but I realized that when he was <laughs> swearing at me as a child, that it was actually because um, of this thing that he tried to do. So there was, I guess, uh, um, this element of, of suicide as a possibility, I realised, had been in his life all along. Um, well, maybe not all along, but he'd, there was an, a, I, I also subsequently learned there was another occasion when he was much younger, and um, so I just extrapolated from what I had 
with my own father and, and mm -hmm. imagined just a little bit further that, that, he, that he had gone and done that, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm also finding it hard to hear every <laughs> single word because of um, Dalton's stage is quite loud. <laughs> um, so sorry if I miss key things. Yeah, that no worries. Should we talk? Do you need, me, need us to talk louder? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, sorry. But everyone can hear, can't they? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, thanks for that. So you really did lean a lot into your family experience and your father's experience then with, with this book. Yeah, There's a few yeah. references I, there. I, uh, certainly in the first... Yeah, the, the, the book's divided into a few sections, but certainly in the first section I drew a lot from the research I did. You know, like I thought, well, I could... You know, I could go interview my dad's friends and I could sort of base this book on that. And yeah. even if the book is no good, then at least I've had this experience. And, you know, yeah. I, I found out a bunch of stuff that I didn't know, so I wouldn't be an entire waste of time. And so it was a... A, a really good experience. It was a fantastic experience, sort of travelling around the country and, yeah, meeting old hippies and, um, yeah, talking about the 70s. It was awesome, yeah. Did you get good feedback from them after they read the book or you don't think they all read yeah, it? Yeah, I've had some, some lovely feedback, actually, and there's, a, oh, there's one particular guy who, the, the, who um, I in some ways based, based some of the... one of the main characters on who's alive and living in Ballina and... Um, a beautiful guy, you know, and he was he was there in the ashram in the early uh, in the late seventies, mid to late seventies, and um, you know he still really counts that experience as as tr truly an extraordinary one. Mm -hmm. um, and we had some sort of um, debates about how the how the book should play out, and and he disagreed about certain things that I did. Yeah, and I really had to sort of take them on board and think and think about whether. I needed to change the book to suit um, what he felt the book should do. Um, but I had to also trust the enormous amount of research I'd done speaking to a lot of other people and, and mm -hmm. also reading an enormous amount of accounts of, of people's time at, at that, in the ashram. Um, and I had to sort of back myself in and I had to say to him, look, I, you know, I, I totally accept that you think that what happens here is not something that would have happened, but I... Yeah sort of stand by the, the fact that I think it would have, it could have, it didn't happen, but it could easily have happened. And I think that kind of little fictional twist, which is like it could have, which is sort of like the basis of, of, of most fiction, you know, just that little deviation from reality, um, as long as it's sort of grounded in the kind of, a tr a kind of truthfulness is, is sort of what, you, what, you, what the job is. Yeah. Um, and he's obviously not a fiction writer and, and he was really fantastically supportive of me being able to, you know, to do that, even though he disagreed in, in some ways. He, was, he, he gave, me my, gave me his blessing, um, which was, yeah, incredibly important. Yeah, yes. It would have been, a, would have been yeah. a, a failure, I think, if I'd really let him down. Yeah. Mm. You both got to do little travels, didn't you, to write your books? That's, that's pretty good. That's like one of the few perks, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much the only one. <laughs> if you can get them, especially during COVID. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you spent how long did you spend in India writing the two books? Um, I was I, well. The first uh, I was three months writing a book before this, but while I was there, I had a experience that kind of st stuck in my craw. Um, one of the guys I was in residence with in, in Bengaluru was a French guy 
who lived, French Tamil guy who lived in a place called Otterville. Uh, has anyone ever been there? Yeah? No, you've yeah. heard of it? Oh, okay, there we go. So it's basically, um, it's, it's a, I guess it started as an ashram uh, in the 60s. And it, at some point, they purchased land off the newly independent um, Tamil government. And so it's an independent city-state run by hippies in mm -hmm. the south of India with their own laws and their own police and their own um, kind of way of doing things. It's an extraordinary place to be. Like, over time, it's kind of lost. It was started as a sort of... Um, like a transcendental Hindu yogic sort of thing um, with um, Sri Aurobindo, a, a, like a, a guru who was very popular in France. Uh, but over time, it's kind of lost its religious... Uh, um, mojo. Mojo. It's, the mojo's not working. And so they've, now it's just kind of a place where anything goes. And there's a lot of really cool sort of like uh, spiritual and... Uh, you know, uh, land reclamation and mm -hmm. like agriculture stuff happening, but also just a lot of really seedy hippie behavior. And I realized, um, you know, I was raised by hippies and sort of countercultural types. And if there's one thing I know for certain, uh, something my uncle, who was a punk, once said to me was that um, punks are bad people, punks are good people pretending to be bad people, and hippies are bad people pretending to be good people. And it's very true, I think, in some, you know, in some places, in some hippies. And in Oroville, when I was there, there was, there was kind of a sex touristy side to it that kind of was quite exploitative and quite, uh, quite underhanded and sort of evil. Uh, but no one was going to do anything about it because it was no one's job to do anything about it, you know? The, the sort of free love ethos was maintained. And that sort of... That incident, like, saw something about that just rankled with me. And, you know, I didn't fix it either, to, you know, to be fair. I just left the country and went back to my little life. But it stayed with me. And the heart of that became sort of the twist at the end of this book, which I can't really talk about without spoiling anything. So that stayed with me. And then I went away and started writing the book. And then once I had a draft, I went back for another couple of months and just kind of crashed on friends' couches yeah. and, like, you know, just wrote it on there, just made myself insufferable and just and sort of trailed around from the west down to the south just to get the little details right, um, uh, which I think I did, you know. I think that's an important part of writing is to, um, you know, they call it sensitivity reading is the buzzword these days. What is? Sensitivity reading, the idea of that if yeah. you're writing about something outside your own experience, culture or point of view, you get someone to, to read it, you know. Um, I mean, that's just good practice. That's called doing your research, amongst yeah. other things. And um, so I wanted to make sure I got all the little... When I was writing about a country that's not my own, I wanted to get all the little details right, so I had yeah. to make sure I was in the places. And then I gave it to writer friends from those places and cultures to make sure that I'd gotten it as close as I could. Okay. And they were like, this is fine, but, like, all of... The, Every Indian writer who read the book, there's a, there's a, long, there's a long sort of subplot about a, an Australian working class bloke who wants to be an Olympic swimmer and he swims and he swims and he swims and he's got a dream and he, Ian Thorpe's posters up on the wall. It's a whole chunk of the book. 
and every Indian writer I gave it to were like, we love the book, except for the swimming stuff. The, the swimming is really boring, and you should cut that. And I'm like, you don't understand, that's all we got. I mean, you've got the Maharabhata and the Taj Mahal, but you know, in suburban Melbourne, I've got this one guy who can swim very fast. And so, you know, um, to answer your question, I was there for about No, it did, it, and it sort of leads into some things I wanted to talk about as well. Of course. Like, it's interesting here that you got sensitivity readers. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, yesterday was International Women's Day. So Solidarity. Yeah, so, you know, for, for a lot of us during this week, we, we don't just think about the theme, which was about, you know, ending the bias, but International Women's Day has also... It's a time when uh, themes such as uh, sexual assault, abuse, coercion sort of comes up mm -hmm. into the public eye a lot more. Um, yesterday on stage, a friend of mine disclosed um, a sexual assault while she was working in the police force. So, you know, I was giving her some support yesterday and, and um, these things happen. So, looking at your book, you know, these themes are in there as well. So, I mean, like, you've got the antagonist, Connor, who's a white Australian, who, who frankly preys on women. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's, he's a predator. Mm -hmm. um, he's not very appealing and, and he's quite unpleasant and egotistical and he preys on women. So... He doesn't have much luck with younger women. He's getting older, so... Um, but with older women, he will try coercion or he'll drink spike, get them drunk, um, and then rapes them or sexually assaults them. Like, a lot of times it's not mutual there. And then, um, for those that haven't read it, he then will rob them. He'll still... You know, this will go on for a couple of days, the behaviour, and then on the last night he'll steal all their things, and then he takes photos of their passport and documents enhance that onto a, um, a, a, a criminal gang who then wipes out the women's accounts, the white women. Um, and in the ashram, you know, you've already talked a little bit about it, where the ashram run, run by a French woman, white woman, and yep. really there's no rules in there and there's, there's white Europeans and Americans in there and, and we're seeing hints of um, sexual assault of children, rape, um, uh, children are disappearing. Um, so there's all these really dark things going on which you've alluded to. But some, something that didn't sit right with me is that globally there's a lot of voices now, there's a lot of movements saying, hey, we're not taking this anymore. Even in India where we're seeing women take to the streets with sticks in their hands, you know, hitting police officers, people are speaking up. But within your book, there was no one speaking up after these horrible things that Connor did to the women. Um, there was no mention in there of these social change movements. Um, and there was no condemnation or justice or, or, or any of these sort of things. And it got me thinking about... And, and also for Indian women, they, they, were, they were... Both Indian and white women sort of had no agency in the book. And that sort of got me thinking a little bit in that as writers, when we broach these subjects, and they're important subjects and they can create conversations, but what sort of responsibility do we have if, if we're putting this matter out there? You know, how do we contribute to the conversation? Whereas, I don't feel like you contributed to conversation. You let Connor walk free, and he, there was no justice and con condemnation, nothing. So was this conscious? Like, you wanted him... 
You want to know justice. Well, um, whew. Sorry, but, you know. <laughs> Excuse no, me. No, no, no. No. No, no here's no. question now. No, they, these We're are... having a conversation about sexual abuse of children. Excuse me, these and are, adults. These are excellent questions, and thank you for the questions. Um, I'll just try and respond in order. Um, well, was it conscious that he goes unpunished? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, as I said earlier, it is a horror story. It yes. is an intersectional horror story about how um, a terrible man can do terrible things yep. and get away with it, not just because societal paradigms are in place that let him get away with it, but because he doesn't see what he does as so bad. Mm -hmm. Like every, no one thinks they're the bad guy, you know? Yeah. Everyone thinks they are, um, everyone thinks they're the hero of the story, Yes. you know? Uh, which explains much why the world is the way it is now. Connor is a sexual predator. He doesn't, yes. if I can push back gently um, on the narrative, he doesn't drink Spike, but he does prey on lonely people and, and rob them after yeah. seducing them. Yeah. Uh, which is not behaviour I can do, obviously. And sometimes it's not seducing, it's drink spiking and things like that, yeah. Um, in the context of the book, he yeah. is the terrible man. He is, but when we meet yes. him, when we first meet him, he is, un, he is irredeemable. Mm. But then as you explore his backstory, you learn that he too is a survivor of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. You know, and so the behaviours that he, you know, uh, without going too deeply into my own backstory, you know, uh, you know, sexual encounters that you have when you're very young far too young, that you, at the time, you view as uh, positive or fun uh, can be incredibly damaging, you yeah. know, because you don't yeah. realise that you're being groomed at the time. Yeah. And then later on, as you go through life, you know, um, you know, unless you get a bunch of therapy, or better, you pay people to uh, buy books in which you nut out your therapy. Um, you know, those behaviours can, can recur and come out in all sorts yeah. of damaging ways. So he kind of is a villain, but within his own point of view, he, uh, he doesn't think too deeply about what he's doing because he sees himself as the victim all through his life, even though uh, in the sort of intersectional power dynamics, he has all the power. You know, because he's mm. poor and damaged and, you know, he's from a very kind of... He's very low on the on the ladder in small town Australia where he grows up. Mm -hmm. When he moves himself into a location and a time and finds a way where he can find people who are intersectionally more disadvantaged than him that he can prey on, yeah. he still doesn't see it that way. He just sees himself as surviving, which I think is a very insidious type of evil that permeates, like it's sort of a toxically masculine uh, character trait that runs very deep at the heart of Australian society. And I wanted to interrogate that through the yeah. character of Connor. Sasha, um, you know, she has her own problems, but each of them have their own damage and neurosis. Yeah. And they're complementary in the worst way. I mean, we've all been in a relationship that's, you know, you meet the wrong person at the right time, you know, and you, mm. and you mesh together in the worst possible way, like a 
immune system and a coronavirus, for example. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so when we meet both characters, they're at that time of their life where they are, they're ready for some sort of grand change. Mm -hmm. Or at least Sasha is, and Connor is ready to just keep being a schmuck, you know, and an antagonist and a villain. Yeah. And, you know, when you're a hammer, the whole world begins to look like a nail. Mm. So his motivations are that sophisticated and that blunt. Does that answer the question at all? Yeah, and it sounds like you really have thought about it. Like, from what I'm seeing in interviews, no one's asked this question of you. So, mm. and you've had an answer, which I think is great. Oh, well, you know, I, I, you know, it's not just words in the book. I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. I tried yeah, to think yeah, about yeah. a little as I went. If we're going to put these hard things in our books, mm. we have to be ready to talk about them. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I, if I was going to write a book interrogating powers, power, yeah. like power structures in a, a tourist paradigm mm -hmm. and bring in gender and, um, and race and power and, you know, yeah. crime and all of these things, I yeah. mean, you have to, you have some responsibility to think as deeply as you can. And I've never yes. been accused of being a particularly deep thinker. But I do have a lot of time on my hands, <laughs> so I did what yeah. I, I did my best. Yeah, no, it's it's good. Thank, Thank you for having that conversation. Thank you for having that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the session is titled "Searching for Redemption." Um, what do you both think about the word redemption in relation to your books? We'll go to you first. Um, yeah, look, it's probably not a word that I would I would. Um, I thought about it all during writing, writing the book. Uh, it's sort of a, it's a, it's a very Christian word, I suppose. It mm. sort of implies a kind of um, release from sin, I think. Um, and I think I was probably m more interested in, um, in the Buddhist idea of, of realisation, you know, which is the idea that um, everything you need is already present, that you already, yeah. you already have it. So I think it's not a word um, necessarily that... Um, uh, the characters, I think, would, would use to describe what, what they're doing. Um, but there is, I suppose, yeah, I suppose that right in the, in the final section there, there is, um, there are very meagre attempts to make some recompense for sort of bad decisions, just kind of ordinary bad decisions that people make as parents, I suppose. Yeah. So, yeah, it is a book that's very much about failed fathers in particular. Yeah, failed, failed parental models and um, a, a failure of that connection that is then transferred from one generation mm. to the other. So I suppose in a certain sense, um, we all have a kind of role in, especially if we're, like, procreating, redeeming, um, redeeming some of the failures of our... Of our um, of the previous generation, and um, I suppose that's in some ways what, you, what you're doing when you're when you're having kids and mm -hmm. trying to bring them into the world is is a kind of act, a small act of redemption potentially. Okay. Do you see the word in your book? Redemption. Yeah. Uh, n not as such. Yeah. Uh, the very little redemption. In my book, um, Sweetness and Light is something of an ironic title. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know if you get the impression 
that I'm an optimist. Um, you know, I, I tend to have a pretty dour worldview, but I feel like the past couple of years have proved me right. Um, I did want to play with the idea of redemption as a character arc. Mm. Like, I, there is, towards the end of the book, there are a few twists, which I would, you know, won't yeah. go into too much. But I wanted, we're trained when we're reading or watching a movie to, to even if a character is no good, uh, you know, your anti-hero, I guess, we're trained to believe that they're going to come through and change. You know, that's, mm -hmm. what, that's, what we, uh, that's what we look for in a book. We look for someone to get better or to learn something about themselves and thereby teach us something about ourselves in reading. That's what we read novels for. And so I wanted to play with that idea that maybe someone can't change mm. or maybe someone doesn't try hard enough or someone reaches for a moment of redemption and enlightenment and misses and the consequences that has echoing through the rest of... Uh, the story. So that's the closest my book comes to redemption. Yeah. Um, I may, the next one there'll be redemption, I promise. Um, yeah. I, but remember I said I found that archaic meaning of redemption, mm. which means to buy one's own freedom? I mm. think that fits. I mean, perfectly. Yeah, yeah. perfectly. We won't give the end away. Um, but yes. yeah. Yes, one freedom, please. Yep. Yes. So we're popping into question time now. Um, and then we'll do the book signings and everything. So has anyone got a question? Uh, the mic's in the middle there. Come on, be brave. They're both interesting books. I'm sure you can think of something to ask. Oh, there we are. <laughs> thank, thank you, first of all, Miles and Liam, and thank you for revealing why I'm a hippie. <laughs> um, that was very, very enlightening. Um, I guess to ask you both, um, back to when you first said in the West to go on a holiday or go to an ashram to try and heal or actualize, mm -hmm. um, from both of your research and writing, what have you found is the, the source of that and the continual uh, motivation for seeking improvement of the self and, yeah... That's the question. Um, well, I think it's a, it's a very um, uh, enticing promise, you know, the promise of, of transformation. Um, and I don't know, I guess that, like, that, that time in the 70s, I think, was quite different to now. Like, the more, like... To, to leave Australia in the in the seventies was a big like financial ask. There, you know, Lonely Planet, you know, was born in nineteen seventy-two as a zine, basically. So you, you were basically doing it on your own. There weren't guest guest houses in their way or, or, or whatever Airbnb and or tours in the way that there are now. Um, so that um, you know that that impulse, which was very much about um, getting out of the kind of white suburban. Austra like speaking from a, an Australian perspective, the white suburban Australian kind of mundanity was incredibly powerful. And I think it was one of, you know, like it was a really eye-opening experience for people to see another culture, to see the kind of um, the arbitrariness of their own reality. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's still, that kind of seed is still live, even though... Um, 
as kind of Liam's book shows, it, it has um, uh, fettered, maybe, you know, like that, that, capital, that, that whole self-actualization movement, I guess, the human potential movement, which sort of rose in the 60s um, as a response to kind of, in a certain sense, as a response to Freud's, what they saw as Freud's overly pessimistic idea of psychology, which was basically to turn neurosis into ordinary unhappiness. Um, they, the, the human potential movement took the idea that, that humans have a incredible resources and incredible um, room to live lives of fulfilment and happiness and creativity. Um, and so they, they took so certain psychological ideas and they melded them with certain things from um, kind of Eastern philosophy, I suppose, Eastern religion. Um, and they were in the 70s like quite radical, pretty pretty kind of, there were not very many um, uh, kind of checks and balances on what was being done um, and there were a lot of mistakes being made um, and the, yeah, the health and safety regulations were, were pretty slack um, but there was still I think a, like a, a really radical impulse um, to live, a, to live a, a kind of fuller, a fuller life that um, that kind of self-actualizing um, project, I think, is one that's that's also been easily co-opted as the years go by 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 capitalism. It's a certain it's a certain that kind of like the perfection of the self or the perfection of the life, the perfectibility of one's own life, is. Um, and I don't know if any of you were here yesterday and heard Amir Shunavasan um, talking um, about this idea that. Um, that, you know this deeply problematic idea that you know that a life is um, something that we can sort of perfect like a commodity. So I think that whole but that whole project is fed into like a like a real a really corporate idea of of the self. But at its heart, I think there are real you know there's a real uh, an energy you know and a, and a and a and a worthwhile challenge. So that's, I guess that's my answer. We've got another question here. Did you want to add to that, Liam, or can we go to the next question? What would you like? Um, no, I think that's much better than anything I can say. <laughs> I'm sure you could. <laughs> we'll, we'll go to the next question then. Um, I, I think I was there. Um, <laughs> I think. Um, uh, I experienced... I didn't go to India myself, but I certainly knew lots of people who did. And I know people who since then have had an ongoing relationship with India who go back, people who teach yoga, people who, for whom that was a really important and positive experience. So I, th I, th I think that's dead right. When you speak, I feel so ancient because it sounds like you're speaking you know, a different time, different country. Is there an equivalent today? And if so, what is it? TikTok, I think. This is a very sideways answer to that question, but to add to Miles's point, that spiritual uh, improvement, self-actualization has been corporatized to a great extent. I mean, we live in an age where... Um, 
I, I guess the overriding, overriding sort of ethos in religion is money, is accumulation of capital. And to the point where it is sort of, it had, there's a religious fervor to it in, in, you know, in many walks of life and many ways of being, which is fine, you know, I like money too. If you want to give me money, that's fine. But um, it is all consuming. You know, in the same way that, like, you know, look at, look at when one religion subsumes another, you know, for example, when the conquistadors went into uh, South America, they would build Catholic churches on the site of previous sites of worship and subsume mm. uh, local deities into various saints, you know, is a way to, to make the thing palatable. Capitalism does the same with all manner of religious traditions today, you know? Look at, um, you know, at some point yoga went from an ancient Ayurvedic practice to something my parents did out of a book in a stinky room in suburban Melbourne to, you know, cardio attack yoga that comes free with my gym membership, you know? I mean, they're all iterations on a theme, but what is it evolving towards? Where is the spiritual, uh, where is the sort of corporatized spiritual organization that we can march towards as one? Maybe Wikipedia? I don't know. I'm cynical that there's nothing that capitalism can't eat. I mean, it was International Women's Day yesterday, which started as a, you know, a, a communist initiative, mm. like a communist feminist initiative, but has since been hijacked by a... Capitalism, yeah. Well, like a digital marketing marketing company in London who mm -hmm. have uh, since trademarked International Women's Day and Google bombed it so that when you search for yep. it, that's yep, what definitely. comes up first, yeah. you know? There's nothing that capitalism can't eat, <laughs> so I don't, I don't actually have an answer except uh, please buy my books. No, I think that's really good. <laughs> and, and, and that's a really good point too, but where we are right now is the sacred site. We're, we're actually sitting here on a sacred site and see the... Um, the inclines, uh, they dug into this sacred site to this level and built all the, the colonist buildings that we can see around us. So, yeah, capitalism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, like, this is sort of stepping a little bit further away from the question again, but the, the relationship between cults and, and capitalism is kind of interesting. And I was reading this... Um, just read this little quote by Walter, Walter Benjamin like recently where he said that um, capitalism is the celebration of a cult without dream and without mercy, mm. by which I, th I think he means partly that capitalism is like a party that you can't leave. You're, never, you're actually never allowed to leave the party. And we've seen, um, like, like, this party's been going on for quite a few hundred years yeah. and we have totally trashed the place, but no one's allowed to go home, you know? So I think um, there is a, there's, there's a sense in which, for instance, some people like to point at cults and, and um, look, at the, look at the way that they have failed from a position of, um, of quite um, comfortable complacency in the, in, the mid, in the midst of their own cult, you know, because it, it's, pretty, it's not difficult to see capitalism as, in a sense, its own kind of death cult, you know, one that is literally driving, well, not literally, metaphorically driving towards the cliff um, and in which we all have a kind of um, 
unquestionable faith in yeah. this thing called economic growth. That, yeah. Excellent. We've, we've got about three minutes. I reckon we can fit in another question. Okay, I was just going to ask, having been to India a number of times, it's, uh, it's like, uh, like a kaleidoscope. It's like if you were going to go to, uh, when you go to India, it's the only place you really feel as though you're actually on another planet. But at the edges of it, as I, I guess you describe in your book, there are really elements which are out of, out, you know, out of your experience in the sense that you see a level of richness and wealth which is uh, obscene and you see levels of poverty where people really have very little opportunity to do other than absolutely survive at the bottom level. How do you think you know, the way India is organised as a society and how those that complexity operates affected the way you've put your books together? Hmm. I'm very aware that we're just like two white guys talking about India. Um, uh, um, do you, why don't you have a go? You know, I mean, there is a vast... Um, there is a vast gulf between visible poverty and extreme wealth in India, but happily, um, the way Australia is being governed, we will have that here soon too. So um, that's something to look forward to. Um, you know, I don't, you know, as, as a white guy with two minutes on the clock, I don't think I'm qualified to, you know, go into issues of class and caste and race and, uh, you know, conquered kingdoms and whatnot. Um, I was just trying to buy time for miles, yeah. <laughs> no, okay, thanks. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really rich, difficult question. I mean, obviously, obviously for both of us, it, it held such a, um, you know, it, it, it held so much, you know, it, it's such a rich place. And even to talk about India is sort of ridiculous because there are so many different parts of India that, and different languages and, um, uh, but it's, a, it's, it's also something I suppose that Australians have a kind of weird connection to, even if it's a kind of um, imaginary one that um, is continuing, you know. It's a continuing connection, a con continuing conversation, I suppose, between, between the two cultures. Thank you. And we've come to the end already. And no one cried, so that's good. There's still time. <laughs> the tissues are here, it's all right. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming to listen to this session. Miles and Liam will be at the signing table over there soon that you can line up and get your book signed. If you don't have any of the books, um, the tent, but also um, check out previous books too. Um, thank you both for coming and talking. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Karen. And thank Thanks you all for coming. Thanks a lot.